Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee. I'm Maz Mary, And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. morning good morning we're sitting on opposite sides because we're trying to figure out this camera thing uh wherever i go there's lots of this space doesn't matter if we don't move the camera what side it is so clearly i'm meant to be on camera that's all we can conclude don't you think obviously <laughs> definitely we're excited today to have a woman named allison harding who we connected with through jennifer place who was a guest of ours a while ago, but Allison and I had the chance to connect recently, and I know that you are going to love her story, you're going to love the work that she's doing, and you're going to love the energy that she brings to the conversation. So let's just get her on camera and get right to it. Good morning, Allison. Good morning. Oh, wait, you're muted, Allison. Okay, good morning. There we go. How are you? Good, good. I, it's a little earlier for me here in Denver. So I was like, when I heard that I need to have energy, I decided to give myself a little <laughs> snap and, and have just a sip of coffee. That's wise. Allison, if you, if we looked out your window right behind you, would we see mountains? No. Well, that way. Yep. Yeah. Um, but you'd have to be We'd have to go outside and down the street a little bit to get well, a mountain view. I wasn't suggesting we should. <laughs> Let's have that nice visual in our mind. Yeah. Or been to Fargo, North Dakota, Allison, but it's so flat. We can almost see your mountains. Yeah, we had snow. We had a pretty good snowstorm last week and we lost a lot of our tree limbs because the leaves were out for spring. Oh. And then we got six inches and a lot of broken branches last weekend. So oh. it's very green right now, which I love. But you can tell them we got the moisture, but it was it was heartbreaking to wake up and kind of see all the dead branch, all the broken branches in the road last weekend. Oh, the weather. The weather will always be something <sighs> with us, won't it? I know. I know. Well, uh, Allison. Interesting as weather is, and in the on the Great Plains, we find it incredibly interesting. Mm -hmm. Let's jump right into your work. Um, but let's start with the question we mostly always start with, which is give us your there to hear story. Start wherever you want and take us forward to how it is that we're talking to you today on Daily Dose. All right. Well, I'll be very brief with the past because I've I've lived a long life so far. Um, but I I, I grew up as a, a small town girl in Nebraska. I came um, to college in Colorado. That's what got me to college. I started drinking and using marijuana when I was in high school. And then it just kind of carried on uh, more seriously through college. And I found myself um, graduating from college barely. Um, I did, did do it, but I was, I was in pretty bad shape. And I thought that would be the end of the, the youth. You know, I thought after, you know, that's just what you do when you're young. And um, I found myself at 25 years old in a really, really dark place and was, um, uh, was in a relationship with another, uh, with a man who I ended up, I'm still married to him. I married him and we're together now, but we met in a bar and we used together. And we had a really pretty um, dark 18 months before we both found recovery. So I was 25. He was 27. Um, I walked into AA. He went through a, he was court ordered okay. um, to go to some outpatient treatment programs at the time. This was back in 1987. At the time, there weren't a lot of options and choices for us as we were looking for recovery. Um, and I just, I was lucky enough to just find the rooms of um, 12 step. And I also had a therapist. So he and I did a lot of um, therapy before we ended up getting married. We, we did have seven engagements. I always put that caveat in there. It has not been an easy road. It took us a long time yeah. and a lot of growth and healing before we were ready to get married. So we were engaged and we'd break it off. We'd get engaged, break it off. 
Um, fast forward, um, we ended up ha- getting married and having two children. They are now 22 and 26. Mm-hmm. Um, we, there's, you know, as you can imagine, so much in that packed in there, um, ups and downs. But luckily, and by the grace of our, both of our uh, spiritual lives, we've been able to stay abstinent from alcohol and drugs that weren't prescribed to us. Now we've done trauma work. We've done, we've gone back to therapy. We've had extra marriage counseling along the way. We both, um, our trauma work really for me, I'll speak for me. Um, I learned how codependent I was. So I picked up some other unhealthy behaviors along the way in my journey, even though I wasn't picking up and using those substances, the chemicals, I was, I figured out other ways to balance and and nurture my nervous system. I ran high anxiety um, and I can trace it now back to childhood. Um, I was a super sensitive little girl. I didn't like going to the zoo because it just was so heartbreaking for me to see the animals caged up. And, you know, from culture, I was told I was crazy. Every kid likes the zoo. Well, I didn't. <laughs> and I didn't have anywhere to talk about that. I didn't have a, a safe place. And I, I didn't recognize even the language at the time of what was going on for me. But all of those um, kind of ways that my anxiety showed up and made me um, uncomfortable in my skin showed up later in life, even after the substances were gone. So I've been on a quest. I've gone, um, I've been through four trauma, different trauma intensive programs. I've had a trauma therapist for the past five years. Um, Full disclosure, I didn't even realize that I needed to do some of this deeper work with a trauma therapist till I was 28 years of sustained recovery. So when when we talk about recovery and it being a lifelong journey, you know, I'm a testament to that. You know, I, I've gone back to my roots. Um, I, I, I'm happy to say today that I'm so much better than I used to be. Just, I used to wake up and just, um, I did a little quick, you know, clearing of, okay, it's going to be a good day, you know, um, check the lists off. You know, I prayed for a minute. I meditated. I, I ran through gratitude lists, you know, and I, you know, in five minutes or less, I'd be off. Mm-hmm. And now I've learned that I need a lot more time in the morning to kind of get anchored in my day, especially with the work that I do now, mm-hmm. because I, I spend a lot of hours each day helping um, people that are just beginning their journey as a recovery coach. And it takes an enormous amount of of energy for me to show up and be there for them and not have it be about me and be there to lend them, you know, whatever they need next in their life. And so that's kind of today. I, um, I, what is it? May 26th, I think. Um, And I'm, I got my camper out front. So if you did look out my window, you would see my truck camper and part of my uh, peace and serenity these days at my stage of life, um, is getting away for the weekend to go up and be with nature. Sure. Um, I, I have a stack of books. I've got beautiful music. I've got a husband I adore and a little dog to walk. And I will be going um, intensively this weekend to refill up my my tank. I talk a lot, Tom, in terms a lot about my own energy tank. How much energy do I have for myself today and then to give to others? And I, I have a daily practice now where I'm really um, checking in with myself to really see how much I've got to give. Um, because I, I come from a place many, many days and years where I gave more than I had for myself to others. Yeah. And I'm gradually starting to learn to fill, fill up my tank first before I try to give to others. So, Allison, this is a... Um sort of funny question to ask you because it's a question about Maz. So we'll just pretend like Maz isn't here. <laughs> this is going to be bizarre. <laughs> no, my, my question in thinking, in listening to you say that for many years you gave more than you had. So one thing that has been interesting for me to observe about Maz in his five years and a couple of months of sobriety is that I sometimes worry that he says yes now to things 
because he thinks, well, for so many years, I said, no, I owe it to her to say yes, whether, whether it's what he wants to do or wants to pursue or not. And I can't ever get a straight answer from him. So again, pretend he's not here. And do you find that with the, with the people you are talking to in, you know, sort of long-term addiction, not long-term sobriety, excuse me, is, is that a common, Ooh, a common uh, way of moving through relationships that both weathered the storm and are now in the peace? I think it's very common. And I, I don't know about everybody, but there is a sense when we walk through addiction um, and we find recovery. So we find that oh my gosh, you know, there's an answer to what I've been struggling with all these years. You know, I, I didn't realize that, that, that I was needing help, right? When we, when, and I call it the, we, our brains are hijacked, you know, the chemicals attack and, you know, we just, we just are in survival mode. And so when, when I got into recovery, there was a sense of, oh my God, you know, the, the clouds parted and all my, I was seeing like this whole exciting future and I had wasted a lot of time yeah. like I was 25 years old but my therapist told me I had the emotional health of a 13 year old you know that is as soon as I had started drinking alcoholically that my maturity halted my development halted so here I was at 25 in the body of an adult with the emotional intelligence or emotional sobriety of a teenager I didn't know how to resolve conflict. I didn't know how to um, ask for what I needed. I didn't even know what, I didn't even have a sense of what my feelings were. And I had to unpack a ton of um, learning about myself. Thank God for therapy. Um, you know, and, and I do love a lot of our, our community rooms, um, but you, they only can take us so far. You know, social support with others can, can only take us so far. It really can unpack that deep, dark story of our childhood, you know, and maybe even what came with our parents that we, you know, genetically picked up along the way. So um, to answer the question about doing too much, what I see is, and it's so common with people when they find me and they find that I'm a recovery coach, they're like, I want to do that. You know, I want to help others. I want to be of service because partly because of all the wasted time, but also because of the sense that we got an answer. We figured out a solution to living a better life. And we want everyone else who's out there struggling and hurting mm -hmm. to also figure out what we have figured out. And we, and we know that we can help them because we've lived it. And so I don't know what he's saying yes to. I could ask you, what are you, what? <laughs> oh, it's not, it, it's not like, hey, I want to give the deed to the house to a dog, to a dog um, sanctuary or anything. It, you know, it's just. Well, I, I think let's just use a very benign example. He'll be downstairs watching a movie and I'll say, do you want to go for a walk? And I can immediately tell he does not want to go for a walk. Mm -hmm. but he never says no. And if I say, you know, you can say no. There's always this sort of back and forth of, yeah, but I said no for so long. I should say yes. And and I just, I want to make sure as much as you can make sure that, that he's being authentic to himself. He doesn't owe me to say yes to everything for the rest of all time because for so long he said no to everything. So is it more important to you? Dana, that he be true to himself in that moment, in that, in that present moment that you want him to take care of himself and take care of his needs now and not have it be about anything that he's trying to make up for from the past. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I don't need, like, I'm not, if he says, you know what? I don't, I'm not going to say to him, you drank for 12 years and never said yes. I, that's, I think he's afraid I'm going to pull that on him. No, I don't know anymore. It's, it's a really interesting question. And you're the first person I've ever um, heard sort of address it in the same way. So we don't need to turn this into a couples therapy session. Which I'm not. I And I'm not. No clinical degrees here. Okay. Um, okay. Just know that there's, there's a lot 
there's kind of a pattern for um, us walking through a road of recovery that has, there's some, some guilt and shame that's packed in there at, you know, at, at my core. And so discovering that about myself and, and I remember vividly um, somebody saying to me, no is a complete sentence mm-hmm. because when I would get asked to, to do something, I would, if I had to say no, I had to give you a really long explanation because I felt guilty for saying no. Yeah. And, and no was enough. No. And, you know, so I, there, it's about boundaries for me. It's yeah. about doing things that are in alignment with my values, my, my energy, my place today, not trying to be perfectionism is part of my story. I can tend to go perfectionistic and, you know, and want to be that perfect human being. So saying no, what does that say about me that I'm not perfect, or I could do everything and be everything to everybody. And so I will just share that part of the learning that I had around boundaries and kind of my family of origin and where this all picked up, because I learned in my family system that I needed to be a good girl, I needed to do what was expected of me. I needed to go to the zoo, even though I didn't want to go to the zoo. I needed to not complain about it, even though it it made me so sad. It yeah. probably took me days to recover on my own from it. Um, the the adult children work and the family of origin work and the the trauma work that I've done has really helped me heal those childhood wounds that I picked up along the way. And I don't blame my parents. They did the best they could Mm -hmm. with what they knew. They came to marriage and they came to parenting with some of their own wounds that they didn't recognize. And I fully believe if they had known, they would have tried to work on it before they passed anything on to me. And so, you know, there's this sense of forgiveness and grace that I live my life with now, but I see the patterns show up. You know, the patterns, I haven't gotten rid of all of them. They still rear their ugly heads and I can trace them back to being probably even pre-verbal. Yeah. So it's just about learning and growing and understanding ourselves. And, you know, my husband and I, we just, we've had so many volatile fights over the years and, you know, ups and downs where we were cruising and then just when we thought we have it all figured out, we find ourselves back in therapy because we didn't know if we wanted to even be married to each other anymore. Like, you know, the, the ups and downs, it's been a long, long road and it's just a journey. And the more you can talk about how you're feeling and, and for mass to be able to share, no, I really do want to go on a walk. Trust me, you know, quit picking me about it. Let's just yeah. go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. Right. The, yeah. You, you start working through those things and, you know, it, I, you guys remind me of early, we couldn't even figure out how to decide where we wanted to go eat. You know, it was just when you take two really sick people that have the emotional, um, maturity of teenagers and you put them in this relationship, you take away all the booze and alcohol. Like we were, we, we didn't even, we couldn't even figure out how to decide where to go to dinner. No, yeah. you decide, no, you decide, or you always decide, or why do we always have to go out for Mexican? It was just like, everything was a battle. And we yeah. had a, we had a little sheet on our refrigerator for years that was said dirty fight tactics. And one of us was always running over kept pointing out what the other one was doing as far as an unfair way of arguing. Wow. And it was just awful. And thank goodness we didn't have our children yet. Yeah. When, but our, our children saw enough and experienced enough. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of things I wish I could do over, (laughs) you know, true of life. Yeah. At at least we, we got some therapy and we got sobriety before we brought two little innocent kids to into the world. Sure. Um, So let's transition. Thank you for that, by the way, that was all really interesting and um, good for me to hear. (laughs) Let's transition to what you're doing today. Uh, Let's talk about beyond Betty. Okay. 
Okay. Tell us what that is. First of all, explain the name because I think the name's really yeah, amazing. I like it too. Beyond Betty. Well, um, I had I've spent about twenty years working in the the treatment field, and I worked for the Betty Ford Center, and then I worked for a, a program here in Denver called the Anschutz at the Anschutz Medical Campus called Cedar. And I was always in a sales and marketing roles, which meant I worked on finding people for treatment services. So um, I worked with clinicians and doctors and family members to help their loved ones get services. So um, the, and I came to this role already in my recovery journey. So I had my kind of my biases and my way of doing things that I'd learned along the way. And when I started and working in treatment, I made some observations. I made some observations that um, doctors and nurses and licensed healthcare professionals who get in trouble with drugs or alcohol um, have programs that are five years long. They're called professional health programs. And I was noticing that the general population doesn't have that longer extended type of support that's offered when people leave a treatment program. And then I also learned that the success rates of like the physicians and the veterinarians um, at the five-year mark, they have a lot higher outcomes than we do with the general population. So that was one thing that I got exposed to all over the country. I got to go to national conferences and hear from really smart people in our field with lots of initials behind their names. And then I was starting to really about 2014, 15, 16, 17, and that kind of range, I started hearing a lot of people that I was helping getting into treatment. They were really starting to push back on the 12 step offerings. So mm -hmm. they weren't, the younger adults, the, the heroin addicts, um, when we were, when I was in places where I was talking to them or in groups or at the treatment center about what are you going to do when you leave treatment? You've been in this bubble for 30 days. It's been, you know, in my opinion, it's easy to stay sober when you're, you can't have access. The hard parts when you walk out the door, you go back to your old life. If you don't have the mechanisms in place to really, really start fresh and do things differently. Um, and they would, I'd be like, are you, you know, are you going to go to meetings? And you know, that those meetings aren't working for me. Those, that's not what I'm going to do. And so I was, and because if, if you remember back in 87, when I said that I got into recovery, you know, 12 step was the only thing offered. There was no smart recovery. There was no life ring. There was no Dharma recovery. Women for sobriety was started, but I hadn't heard about it yet. They were, that was a very small community. So what I was seeing in, in this time frame was people were talking about having a lot more choices and doing things differently than what I had grown up with or the recovery that I'd been exposed to. And, you know, the Betty Ford Center and Cedar were heavy 12 step. And they were starting to promote multiple pathways to recovery. So that's really what sparked me. And I need to learn what, what's going on here. I, you know, I know what's worked for me. And I, I could own that I had added a lot of different things to my recovery besides kind of I call my 12-step my foundation. Mm -hmm. And when I'm talking to somebody new, I'll say, you know, I've laid my, my foundation, my house, I've built a recovery house. My foundation was poured by 12 step. And now I've got recovery rooms of a whole different variety. I've got a creative room. I've got a yoga room. I've got a journaling room. I've got a nature room, you know, and I don't even know how big my house is. Cause I, I've just picked up all these tools along the way in my recovery house. And some days I need different things than I do on other days. So recovery coaching really appealed to me because I'd been an athlete. Um, I had been coached. I was, you know, hearing a lot about, you know, people that were getting business coaches or executive coaches. So the whole kind of philosophy around coaching appealed to me. So I became a recovery coach while I was still working at Cedar and 
I was trained through the Connecticut Community of Addiction Recovery um, curriculum. They're they're one of they've been around a long time, and they're one of the big leaders in curriculum for coaching. There's others, but that was the one that I did. And um, in 2018, I left Cedar in my role as a marketing outreach professional. And I began Beyond Betty in this whole philosophy of wanting to support people with non-clinical services post-treatment. And in the spirit of helping them longer than just a couple of weeks post-treatment. Like, let's talk about re- what recovery looks like. And I I really started learning about what it takes to be successful. And I took those physician programs and all the components that work for them. And I really started to try to increase um, knowledge for our community around what what is successful recovery look like? How do we measure it? You know? And even if, if relapse is part of someone's story, um, how do we catch them before they go down for a long period of time? You know, how do we have enough support mechanisms around them so that they might have a bad weekend and they might turn around Monday and decide they want to get back at, at their sobriety or whatever recovery looks like for them. Mm-hmm. And catch, catch them in the safe, non-judgmental, um, non-stigmatizing way. And yeah, a lot of times it, it cl- uh, you know, in, in a perfect world for me as a coach, I, I want a clinician on the team because, you know, we know these are complicated situations. We have people with lots of trauma. We have people with mental health challenges. You know, I, I've talked a bit about my anxiety. Most of my clients have um, significant anxiety and or depression or both. Many of them are having issues falling to sleep. You know, they can't sleep. And their, their nutrition needs to be addressed, their physical health. And so we really need a team. And so that's what I'm all about is building a recovery team, um, including family members. Your, your example earlier is just a perfect example of, yeah. you know, recovery isn't easy for everybody involved. Everybody's kind right. of on a recovery path. You're you're recovering around this too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's um, in fact, you know, I I often say that I have feel so fortunate to have gotten to be peripherally involved with this 12 step thing. I don't need to do it for myself, but the the kind of spillover of Maz having, excuse me, gone through it is that I've learned about it, too. And so much of it is just useful to being a more actualized human being because just because drugs and alcohol weren't my problem doesn't mean I don't have things I need to overcome and trauma to recover from and and areas of my life that I don't need to stop and really evaluate in terms of are are these tendencies or are these traits serving me and if they aren't how can I put them down I mean that's just the nature of being alive uh, and so it's you're right this this sort of family component to it is both a challenge and a blessing if you can if you can muscle your way to a point where you can start to have real mm. conversations that are not tied simply to blame and shame and the pieces that really do come in that early stage i think of recovery it's exactly why we needed on our refrigerator that dirty fight tactics mm-hmm. you know because there was so much blame and shame. I remember on a Thanksgiving, our first Thanksgiving married and I, we got a new bread maker (laughs) and I made fresh bread for Thanksgiving. And we're on the way to my husband's family. We have this huge blow up in the car and I, I throw the bread into the, the windshield and I'm like, let me out, you know, and I'm just, he's still, we still, now we can laugh about it, but I'm just, I'm walking off the ramp on the highway. I've got my little, handbags and I'm, I'm just as mad as could be i've got like at that point like seven years of sobriety yeah and yeah. and this was before we had cell phones right i'm, yeah. I'm at i'm at a pay phone at a gas station calling a cab he's at this the one next calling his family to say we're not gonna be there right we won't be there this time yeah i mean that's seven that's a that's a relationship 
of two people that have put down the alcohol and the drugs seven years in. Yeah. And that, that's an example of how we coped that day. Yep. And we, it's like family folklore now, you know, the, the kids know the story and <laughs> my husband will get up and model how I, and he's like yelling right out then. the window, come on, get in the car. Yeah. It's just insanity. Yeah. You know, yeah. but in, from the outside world, we were sober. We, you know, everybody thought we were well on Everything our way. Yeah. But it, yeah. Oh my God. It was, yeah. it was volatile at its, yeah. So my husband often says, you need to write a book. He thinks I should write a book of this whole journey and story, but I, I haven't gotten the energy yet to do it, but well, there are some, it would make a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so beyond Betty is four ish years old. I um, technically, I started it in 2011, but I didn't give you the, Oh, I, Oh, okay. Yeah. So and, but I put it on pause and went to work at Cedar because I didn't know exactly what to offer. I knew okay. I knew I wanted to do something in the whole recovery support. We call it the recovery orientated systems of care now as a continuum of care. Yeah. Um, as a as an industry. And so I knew I wanted to work on the recovery side versus where I'd been sitting in the treatment side. Yeah. But I, it took me a while to kind of figure out, I'm still really kind of figuring it out, you know, because I, quite honestly, when you tell somebody with a month of recovery that it's going to take them five years before their chances of a reoccurrence go down, they sometimes don't want to hear that. And they, you know, so I've had to learn how to really be gentle and gradual with all of this because. With being diagnosed with cancer too, like when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, you know, so I, you know, as much as I want them to commit to five years and that, you know, in year three, four and five, it's you're only going to like work with somebody like me. We're going to just do like a quarterly checkup every three months. It's not, you know, not it's not for five years, but somebody like me can listen to what's going on in your life in year three and maybe some things that have slipped by your awareness that that could be great things for us to talk about. Yeah. You know, knowing what you used to do back in your first year and what you what you stopped doing and maybe yeah. what you could go back to. Maybe they need to go back to therapy. Mm -hmm. Maybe they did a lot of therapy and then they've taken a couple of years off, but some things are showing up again that could really be dealt with from some more therapy. Yeah. And someone like me with with my experience can kind of see things at times that maybe they can't recognize yet. So um, the recovery checkups are what is so effective up to the five-year mark. And then the, the research shows that at that five-year mark, the chances of a reoccurrence for somebody who's abstinent, they that's when the, it goes down for them. That's when they start their chances. They have more of a chance of staying in recovery at the five-year mark than going back to use. Wow. But you, you guys know what's going on in our society with all of the relapses. Yeah. 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 It's terrible. But I, I do remember you coming home. So, you know, left the house and six and a half weeks later back home um, after two weeks in the hospital and four weeks in rehab and thinking, wow, this feels like a lot for the two of us to manage now. Yeah. The same way I remember walking home two days after my son was born and looking down at this baby and thinking, huh, <laughs> so I guess like, it's just me now. <laughs> I guess I'm just gonna figure this out. I mean, you have a general sense of things and you have a few tools in your belt by that point, but boy, you feel pretty ill-prepared if something goes sideways. Yeah. Um, so I, I love this idea of from a spouse perspective, I love the idea of not feeling like it's on me to somehow be vigilant and um, working through my own thing and observant without being nagging and asking questions without intruding. And I, it's, it's a lot to take on. So I, the idea of having, a team of people who are there with me 
to help him because he's asked for it is is enormously useful really really important and you know just like having kids we needed a village yeah you know i i think and um you know that's where the social support that's one of the the biggest things as a recovery coach that i'm working on with people is building their social support you know i as a coach cannot like in 12 step rooms it's recommended that you get a sponsor and you work through the steps. My, my ethics say I cannot be your coach and your sponsor. There's a clear boundary there. And one of the reasons that that's the case is that if they get mad at me and I'm serving two roles, they've just lost two of their team members. Yeah. And I much rather have, they have a separate person who's a sponsor, me, if they get mad at me, they can go to their sponsor. If they get mad at their sponsor, they can go to me. If they've got a therapist, that's three. If they've got a couple of like-minded friends in the support meetings, I always say you only need two or three really good friends. It's helpful to have people that are kind of at the same place as you are. It's good to have people that have a little bit more time and can be more a little bit more of a mentor. Yeah. Um, then you get the, that amazing clinic clinician. In my opinion, we need clinicians who are dually licensed that have not only addiction credentials, but also mental health credentials so that we have, right. we're working with clinicians that understand the anxiety, the depression can identify if anything is going on that where you may need to get some, some psychiatric medications as part of the process here you know we just we need people that know what they're doing that will catch these things that make recovery so challenging for people boy i'm reading a book i guess it's not out here called a black man in a white coat about an african-american doctor and um it's an incredibly fascinating book but Part of it is is the complexity of care for African Americans and for people in poverty, both both camps sometimes overlapping. And I'm listening to you talk about again this this uh, cohort of assistance, and I'm thinking about you know as as healthcare coverage becomes harder and harder to come by, and as as it becomes more and more expensive and you have fewer and fewer options, particularly if you don't have financial resources, how in the world Mm. do we stop addiction if it really requires three, four, five people invested per person to keep somebody on track? It's just extraordinary to think about the kind of seismic change in how we work with addiction that will be required if your instinct is correct. It's amazing. Well, you're, you're, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I personally, this week, are thinking about how do we do it on top of everything else going on in the world right now? Yeah. Because, yes. You know, these this these shootings this week between Buffalo and the um I had a I have a coach yesterday that I supervise who lost two second cousins two little nine year old and a ten year old child mm. and it, so heartbreaking right so that's a lot for us to deal with with our mental health and our you know our how we navigate. You know, how do we deal with all these emotions? So um, I want all I I want to just point out, you know, what we're doing, what I'm talking about is no different than how we treat diabetes, how we treat cancer. When you get when you get diagnosed with diabetes and somebody comes in and teaches you how to do the insulin, somebody does a stress test with you and helps you if you need to lose some weight, you know, you get a nutritionist. And you go back for checkups to have your blood work re-looked at, right? Like, it's a comprehensive situation. When you get cancer, you get, 
You go to the specialist, the oncologist, somebody helps you decide, radiation, surgery, you know, you, you get this, these, this path this, and you get this help. And so addiction is the same way. And, you know, in our, in our society, you know, everybody pretty much has heard of rehab mm -hmm. and, you know, if you've got money or insurance, you can usually, if you're ready to go, you can usually find a rehab. Some of them are good. Some of them aren't so ethical. Yeah. Um, we hope, you know, for the most part, the people get good guidance and get ethical people that they find ethical people. There's just that ethics. And when you bring up the, the piece around less resources, less money, um, I'll just speak for, for Denver right now. I'm able to coach and accept Medicaid. Mm. So somebody that has Medicaid here in Colorado can, can work with someone like me as a recovery coach. Okay. Yeah. They can get clinical services. So my clients have a clinician and I work with some really great trauma therapists here in Denver that take Medicaid. Yeah. So it's out there. Um, unfortunately, there aren't enough. They're busy. Um, sometimes I have to fight to find a spot two weeks from now for a client in somebody's calendar. Yeah. But unfortunately, the nature of addiction means people are always falling off. So you got to hang in there because there's going to be someone that's going to fall off and not want to take advantage of that therapy appointment and leaves the space for somebody that's ready. So there's there's, yeah. there's movement going on, but, um, somebody that I, you know, most of my clients on Medicaid do not go to residential treatment and get 30, 60, 90 days of care. Um, some of them do get to go live in sober living communities because we've got some really great grants coming up or, and coming into our, uh, state right now, there's foundations that give scholarships for sober living that I work with. I've got a client right now that is on full scholarship on in sober living. So um, as hopeless as I can feel sometimes, I have to constantly keep reminding myself that if people really, really want to get well, there are an enormous amount of 501c3s, nonprofits, foundations, and funding right now coming from uh, the opioid epidemic, there's federal grant money, there's state grant money. And there's just, I happen to know in Colorado, a lot of people that care deeply about getting people the resources and the access to services that are needed when they're ready, you know, and that's, I got to leave us with hope. They're just, yeah. you yeah. know, if somebody called me today and they said, I don't have any money and I need help. I would not have to turn them away. I would not have to say, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do. Good luck. Yeah. I yeah. would say, tell me a little bit about your story. And we would find out if they had an aunt that might be willing to help them. We would find out how motivated they are right now. Where are they at in the stages of change? How willing are they to do what it's going to take? And I could get them Medicaid. If they have no resources, they could get on Medicaid. We could make some phone calls if they wanted, if they think they need to be around some other sober people and get out of their environment. We'd figure out a sober living situation for them. Wow. And we would just get them started. And their road would look different than somebody that has a million dollars ready to throw at it. Yeah. But I tell you, sometimes the million dollars can be a barrier. Sure. The the, than the people that are really, really hungry and sick and tired of being sick and tired and they want to get their kids back, you know, or they, um, uh, one key point, everybody's got a motivational fulcrum, we call it. The doctors, the doctors have medical school debt. They've got thriving medical practices. They've got big, expensive homes, big, expensive cars. When they get caught or they get reported for use and they have to go under the five-year program in order to keep their medical license, they have a, mo they, they have a motivational fulcrum mm. to get well. And so our job is always to find out what's someone's motivational fulcrum. 
And every, everybody has one. Hmm. I've, I've had a lot of people tell me the doctor, you know, it's easier for the doctors because it's all about the money. And I tell you, I've got a Medicaid lady right now working in, you know, at a restaurant who's fighting so hard to get her two-year-old daughter back and the daughter's living with her grandparents. Mm. And I tell you what, she's right now, we did a budget this week. She's working on saving for a car and she's paying child support. And her approach to her recovery to me is equal to a doctor. Yeah. yeah. Recovery. Like, so what was your motivational fulcrum when you got into recovery? What was that thing deep down that led you to wanting to, to start a recovery journey? I think it was, it was two things. One, I wanted, I wanted to be me again, but I also wanted to stay married to Dana. Okay. And that, I, I'm not just saying that because Dana sat next to me. That's the yeah. honest truth. Yeah. Keep your marriage. And then when you say you wanted to get back to yourself, how long had you had, do you feel that you had been lost? When, when was the last, how old were you when you could remember being you? About 30. I, I was a late onset alcoholic. I mean, I went in yeah. a when I was 47. Okay. But I think about 30 years old. You lot kind of lost your way. Yeah. And it, it was gradual because it, it you know, I moved to America. I got I had I got two jobs back to back. You know, one of them was a, a tenure track um college position. And I got tenured and everything, but I, I was beginning with hindsight, I know I was beginning to lose my way then. And then Dana and I got married, and I thought, well, this has got to be fine. I should be okay because you know better things kept happening to me and even and in the background i was there was a problem i was having that i didn't register that it was building yeah yeah so you didn't have to lose a medical license or lose a house or lose a business didn't get a DUI, never got arrested didn't lose my job yeah but yeah. you're you 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 were in love and you had a significant relationship that was worth fighting for. And I would argue you were fighting for yourself again. Yeah. You know that I want I missed when I could get my head straight and, and it took a while in rehab too for me to actually take a breath and think, all right, I'm in trouble. That's the two things that when they forced me to think about, that's the first two things I came up with. And I think that's the honest truth. I wanted to be me again and I wanted to stay married. And those are beautiful. That's a, those are two beautiful motivational fulcrums to that are still driving you today. <laughs> right. So when you hear that Dana, when he wants to walk with you, <laughs> it's, it's it, could be, it could be genuine. Yeah. I'll tell you this in, the, in all honest truth with that example, if I was, you know, <laughs> I own a, a dumb ass amount of movies. So it's not like I'm going to miss it. So I know what. Yeah, sure. There's this great thing called pause because, you know, my life was on pause. If Dana wants to walk to the shop, I think brilliant and adventure. And I just go do it because it's fun because that's living. Yeah. Now, if she says to me, I want to go shopping and then I want to go and, and look at pots and pans. I think, yeah, great. But, you know, some things like, hey, let's go and look for. I can't think of a bad example. I know you, you started this. I knew you weren't going to have anywhere yeah. to go with it. Alice. Actually, here's a good one. Okay. Let's go do okay. some work in the garden. I think, Oh God. Yeah. yeah. That's, that is true. I do see that look show up the most then. Um, Allison, this has been so illuminating. It has. It's been wonderful to meet you. Um, you really asked some lovely questions. Thank you for that. I kind of wanted to ask Maz what his motivational fulcrum was, but I thought, well, I won't put uh, him on the spot. I appreciate that you did. And I actually thought I was going to get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you, you've got the same. You guys can um, continue on with another cup of coffee. Dana, what, you know, you've got a motivational fulcrum for hanging in there. Yeah. Like, absolutely. right? And yeah. family members, when we walk through recovery with those we love, or, or, or through addiction, 
there are, that's, you've been through trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you've got a motivational something within you, deep within you, that's not giving up on this. Yeah. Regardless of, you don't know what's going to happen to tomorrow. Right. Right. And you're willing to take the risk. You're willing to hang in there. And because you've got a motivational fulcrum, you guys can figure out what that is, but it's right. It's just beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, this really, what a lovely conversation. Allison, you do good work. Oh my gosh. You do excellent. Oh. Work. Thank you so much for sharing it with, with us and with our audience um, people are, are chirping in with thoughts and responses. You clearly have hit a chord, not just with us. So my um, wish for you is a beautiful weekend. No yes. snow, whatever perfect weather you need to rejuvenate so that you can come back and do this work with other people who clearly need you. Thank you. Thank you guys for, for doing this and inviting me. And I hope my friend Ashley finds her way on here. I hope she does too. Yeah. We haven't heard from her yet. So Ashley, okay. if you're watching, we'd love to talk okay. to you. Good pressure, Ashley. Let's, let's see it. Yeah, I'll follow up with her. And you All guys right. take good care of yourself. I hope maybe one of these days we can meet in person. Oh, right. yes. That'll be we fun. have okay. a lot of people to come to Colorado to see you and you're on that list. Thanks so All much. Right. Take, take care. Much. Everybody Bye. Bye. Have a great day. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana DelVal. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, email me at D-A-Y-N-A at D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L.com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.